Prestige heads and welcome to American Prestige. I'm Danny Bessner here alone because Derek is unable to make it, but I am very excited, nay, ecstatic, to welcome back to the podcast Margaret O'Mara. Margaret is a professor of history and specifically the Scott and Dorothy Bullet Chair of American History at the University of Washington. And she's the author of a recent book on Silicon Valley titled The Code Silicon Valley and the Remaking of America. Margaret, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back. Thanks. <laughs> so last time we were talking, we, we got to the late 1950s and we're talking about the space race and how the space race invigorated Silicon Valley and, and tech in general. Could you maybe just do a little bit of a recapitulation and we could start talking about how this created modern Silicon Valley, the imbrication of defense and tech, and all those very crucial topics to understanding the rise of Silicon Valley itself? Yeah. So there were lots of places around the country that were transformed by the military industrial complex in the 1950s, right? Um, the thing that was distinctive about this valley 40 miles south of San Francisco was that there it was hyper, hyper specialized in small electronics and communication devices. And those were important for the Defense Department during the Cold War, but they were really critical to the space race. Um, look, to, to put both a rocket and a missile into space, it's exactly the same technology, right? <laughs> the payload is different. One has an astronaut the, or, a, or a monkey. The other has a bomb. Um, and so that's hyper-specialization, uh, producing very small, light, uh, very powerful electronics that could go up or send something up into space was something that was just hit Silicon Valley's sweet spot. So the space spending really cranks up after 1957 when the Soviet Union is the first to launch an, a satellite into orbit, Sputnik. And that the, there was a huge wave of spending on precisely the things that Silicon Valley, not yet called Silicon Valley, is producing. And in a kind of amazing story of you can't believe their lucky timing, the a small startup named Fairchild Semiconductor incorporated about a month before Sputnik went into orbit. And so it was one of the great beneficiaries of that wave of spending and contracts. And those contracts were actually the bread and butter of what's now known as the original venture-backed startup, Fairchild, which was not a defense contractor per se, never was conceived as such, but like almost every company in the Valley, most of its business was from the government in those early years. Can we talk a little bit about venture capital and what is meant by venture capital? Um, was this something that is an, uh, always a feature of American capitalism, obviously, but how did it transform over the course of the middle of the 20th century, particularly with Fairchild as this first venture-backed firm? Yeah. Well, venture capital has in some ways always been around. If we define venture capital broadly as rich people's money being used to fund small startup ventures that specialize in new things that 
traditional banks won't lend money, you know, lend money for um, that there is we can go all the way back through the history of capitalism, not just American capitalism, but more broadly and and find examples of that type of venture capital investment. And that's certainly what happened in early Silicon Valley. A lot of the money was coming from outside. One of the, you know, the earliest venture funds that were funding these companies were from Rockefeller money, Whitney money, old family money, Gilded Age money funded Silicon Valley, which is this great connection between one era of hyper wealth and another. But the thing that's different about the high tech model of VC that emerges in California in particular, although Boston also had a really landmark early venture capital firms, notably uh, the first, what's considered to be the first modern high-tech venture capital firm, ARD, which is founded in the 1940s um, out of Harvard and and uh, MIT and is funding a lot of the Boston scientific startups then. But what happens in the Valley is this very um, particular model that is not just money, but it's also mentorship and operational capacity. And so what these venture capitalists are doing is by and large, the guys who are the venture capitalists, or at least the successful ones, are young guys who don't have a lot of capital of their own. They're using other people's money. They have connections. They have a father-in-law or they know someone who knows someone who knows someone or they're managing some other rich Californian's money. But they are bringing operational expertise in the very niche business of manufacturing small, powerful, scientific and defense electronics and 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 providing some, you know, connecting these young entrepreneurs who have technical talent but don't know how to run a company, connecting them with law firms who can write all their contracts and marketing firms that can do their marketing and advertising. And so there's this incredible ecosystem. I call it this entrepreneurial Galapagos that develops in the Valley of very distinctive firms and sets of advisory people, people in groups that are helping these small startups succeed. And that is a really critical part of the whole, the secret of Silicon Valley is this, this community. Is it mostly California money? Is it East Coast money? Where is the capital coming from in the 1950s and 90, early 1960s? The capital is coming from everywhere. Um, it is coming from California landowning families that have capital that they're investing in variety of things. Again, they have these kind of middlemen, these money managers who are identifying these companies as as promising investments or possible investments. It's not completely pie in the sky. I think there's interest among the investor class in the 1960s and what was called space age stocks. In fact, there's a pretty a kind of roaring Wall Street market in the middle of the 60s for these types of companies because they're going like nobody's business because of all of this spending on aerospace and defense. Uh, it's, a, it's a pretty good run for a few years. Uh, but there's also money coming from these old Gilded Age fortunes of the East Coast. I mean, most of the money was on the East Coast. That's the other funny thing about the um, the the whole ecosystem of um, of this moment is that there's not money really. Most of the money is east of the Mississippi. Um, most of the banking institutions, financial institutions, east of the Mississippi. There's so many things that make this such a strange place to become the capital of high technology. Um, and even in this period we're talking about, Boston was number one. I mean, California was not considered to be the capital of tech, if that was something that anyone was thinking of. They were thinking about electronics. They, that's what they called it. Um, but, but keep in mind, computing and computer industry 
was all still on the East Coast at this time, building the mainframes, IBM, all these other companies. They were not in California or headquartered in California. Yeah, it's very interesting. Rand, of course, had a computer in California on the East Coast was was viewed as a place for long hairs to go. And I do want to talk about in this, that in a second. But before we do, mm-hmm. of course, Sputnik um, engenders the National Defense and Education Act. And so mm-hmm. how does that shape Stanford? We had talked in the previous episode about Stanford already being a site of a lot of defense research, particularly during mm-hmm. World War II. And it, of course, becomes a paradigmatic Cold War University. Um, but mm-hmm. if we're thinking about, you know, there are various nodes that help create Silicon Valley, that they're specialists in this microtechnology, they have capital coming there, and there's also, of course, Stanford and Berkeley. So how does the Defense Education Act sh- reshape Stanford? Well, the Defense Education Act is you know, one of those many acts that you put defense on it to get a big appropriation through Congress in these days. Um, but it is uh, what it is bringing money to Stanford and other Cold War research universities for not just basic research, but also for education and and putting money in the system for things like building science buildings and building classrooms and, and enlarging capacity and creating these institutions like Stanford, that are very science heavy, that where the, where sciences and engineering are getting this extraordinary investment. Keep in mind, if you dial back to the early 50s, the U.S. produced very, very few PhDs overall and very few in disciplines like electrical engineering. And there's this identified need, kind of a desperate need in the early 50s identified by policymakers that we need to produce more science scientists and we need to get American students more excited about science and math. So there's also money coming not just to higher education, but in a, but a truly, you know, which was already unprecedented in its scope. And, you know, keep in mind, this is not something that before the Second World War, the U.S. government did not pour money into education at any level at the, at the in the way that they did afterwards. But the other thing that is coming into the system is K through 12 funding, too, that is for a whole host of things coming from the federal government. And it's all, all you know, intricately bound up in the great society and the broader project of of enlarging American prosperity through education. But it also involves a real emphasis on science and math. So now in the 21st century, everything is STEM, 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 right? Science, technology, engineering, math is this policymaking emphasis. But it really comes, this is the latest iteration of a, a focus, almost a panicky policymaking focus on that type of intellectual production as central to national defense and national needs and competitiveness more broadly. Yeah, and it just shows how in this country we only get social democratic things, at least after World War II, when they're connected to militarism. And it's this type of military Keynesianism that we see really dominate the 40s, 50s, um, sorry, the late 40s, 50s, 60s, and early Mm -hmm. 70s. Um, So that's this big transformation, the late 1950s. What happens in, in the 1960s? Because everyone is well aware, 70s is the moment that people know with mm-hmm. a, Atari mm-hmm. and Apple and all of these mm-hmm. various companies. But what, what are the 60s for Silicon Valley, particularly when they're so close to San Francisco, which becomes the center of the counterculture? 
Yeah. They're kind of, you know, it's what's so fascinating is when you think about all the things that are happening in this funny little strip, 10 mile strip of California countryside in the late 60s. It's kind of these um, in a way, it's a sandbox with a lot of parallel play <laughs> when you have, the, you know, that there are these these worlds that are happening like literally miles from one another. And they for a while, they don't cross over and then they do. So uh, what's happening in the 60s on the business side is that the semiconductor industry, the chip making industry is scaling and growing and becoming this incredibly dynamic, fast growing, um, homegrown set of companies, the first generation of tech companies in this region were from headquartered somewhere else. Um, what happens in the 60s is Fairchild is the beginning of a cluster of small and then medium to large size chip makers. In 1968, Intel is founded, uh, co-founded by uh, two co-founders of Fairchild, Bob Noyce and Gordon Moore. Andy Grove is their, the third person they, that comes on. He's not technically a co-founder, but he is there, um, becomes sort of a legendary leader of Intel and legendary business leader of Silicon Valley. So that's 1968. And they're pivoting towards more commercial work. They're, they're not depending on the government contracts in the way that they, an earlier generation did, you know, even just 10 years before. That that spending is slowing. That's there's a bit of those companies that are heavily dependent on defense, including the Valley's largest employer, Lockheed Missiles in Space, which from the 1950s through the end of the Cold War employed more people than any other company in the Valley. So keep in mind, the defense industry is still roaring along. But the other thing that's happening is the 60s are happening. <laughs> Berkeley and Stanford are becoming centers of student activism and the counterculture. And literally down the road from Stanford's campus, up in the hills, you have Ken Kesey and his merry pranksters. You have people dropping out and dropping acid. You have LSD experiments on Stanford's campus and then that kind of morphing into this counterculture. So all of these things are happening simultaneously. And so for the young generation, the college age generation that are coming of age in this late 60s moment, particularly the segment of them that have grown up K through 12, thanks to some of this funding we've been talking about, being really turned on to science and math that have been tinkering in their basements and making, you know, playing with radio sets since they were 10 and uh, go to college at a place like Stanford or Berkeley and get their hands on a computer for the first time. Not a personal computer, of course. This is still a main mainframe using time sharing technology and they're but they're getting to program. They're getting this introduction into this world. And that world is something completely controlled by the military industrial complex. And so as they're on these campuses, they're going to the computer lab that's funded probably by the Defense Department or some other federal agency. And then they're going out on the plaza and they're protesting the Vietnam War and everything that the entities that are funding and controlling the computers are doing. And so this movement emerges within, it's part of the counterculture, but I think to say the hippies did it is too simplistic. Most of the people who were members of the counterculture didn't get, didn't care at all about computers. <laughs> like, who cares? It was this smaller group of nerds who, who also were not that interested in politics, in activism, um, and actually saw in computers, in these tools, the, the, the means to liberation. 
that the way to change the world was not going to be through the traditional avenues of political protest and um, mobilizing in the streets or going, trying to go into public service or policymaking or politics yourself, elected office yourself. The way to do it was to get the computers out of control of big business, big government, big military, and create a personal computing environment where people could have control of the keyboard, control of the this tool of communication. And if there was a computer on every desk and it was connected, they were connected to one another, then, then all of the broader goals of the 1960s of the counterculture could be achieved. You could overcome all of these barriers. War would be over. We would have this mutual understanding and right off together into the sunset. And that's what happened. Well, Martin, uh, we'll, we'll get to that in a, in a moment. But before we do, uh, I just want to stay in the 60s for a second and particularly to ask two questions. Could you maybe mm-hmm. let listeners know what was the state of commercial computing in the 1960s? I think we have a sense that there was a lot of this stuff in the defense industrial side. Uh, and mm-hmm. then I, I also don't want to lose sight of Silicon Valley itself and its transformation from center of prunes to center of computing mm-hmm. and and what's going on in the 60s there before we get to the 70s. So just to repeat, state of commercial computing, what's happening to Silicon Mm -hmm. Valley itself as a place? Yeah. So what's happening in the state of commercial computing, the computer industry? Again, it's an East Coast-based operation. Um, Big companies, IBM is the biggest of the big. Uh, The whole industry is referred to as IBM and the Seven Dwarfs because IBM is so dominant a company so dominant in fact that the Johnson administration puts a uh, brings an antitrust suit against IBM as it's quite literally about the last thing that it does before it sh- turns out the lights and turns things over to the Nixon administration in 1969 it, it is uh and they these are massive very expensive machines the that are sold to government agencies and sold to very large corporations these are not things that individuals uh, have the wherewithal to to buy, um, nor are they designed for that. This is the enterprise. Silicon Valley's place in this is a pretty important one where these chip makers that started off building chips for the space program and the military by the late 1960s have a pretty booming business, a very important business, providing transistorized electronics, the innards for the power for these big mainframe computers. So one of the reasons that Silicon Valley is not a household name or people don't really know much about what's going on there until the 1970s and think, oh, that's when the history started. It's because there were no consumer facing companies then. They were all selling things, companies selling things to other companies. And they were pretty esoteric and they were highly technical and not something that any ordinary mortal would have any sense of. But computers were these large ominous foreign things. I mean, one, you know, I can give you a couple of pop culture references to, you know, that give might bring this alive for listeners. If any fans of Mad Men out there remember the episodes when they brought a massive computer into the back room of the fictional advertising agency and everyone's worried about their, you know, what's, what's going to happen. But those room-sized computers that large companies were buying were one way that 
computing was understood and known. Um, another pop culture reference, uh, one with a lot of resonance to the 70s, the 60s and 70s generation that's coming up in the Valley is 2001 A Space Odyssey with Hal, the, the malevolent AI that takes over, takes control, no spo- spoiler alert, takes control of, of the um, spacecraft in, in that film. And so that kind of, you know, really ominous tech and tech that's uh, has a mind of its own and is also not controlled by ordinary people that becomes a really powerful symbol of all of the institutions in which so many Americans are losing faith at this moment. That's where computing was. And that's, and so where the industry of the valley was fitting into that was in, you know, putting chips in, into machines that previously had had vacuum tubes in them. Um, and then moving, then going beyond computing into other, selling to other industries like car makers and putting the earliest, you know, the first microchips that appeared in cars, which now are basically rolling computers that we drive around. But that that began in the 1970s, sort of replacing some of the mechanical insides with some digital insides. So could we talk about Silicon Valley then as a place and how it's changing over the course of the 50s and 60s with this infusion of capital? Mm Mm-hmm. So Silicon Valley is to the naked eye, not terribly different from some other places in suburban California, which during this moment, there's a, there's a whole, you know, around the Bay Area, around LA, this is a time of massive suburban growth where previously agricultural areas are being developed in very rapid fashion into suburban subdivisions. Um, what sets the valley apart is one, there isn't as much suburban development, although there's a lot, but it's not like every single hillside is being coded. It's still far enough away from San Francisco to, to this day, be kind of a long commute. <laughs> um, the, the, what's now the Caltrain was, was still, you know, the same train. If you were, you know, actually com- a daily commute up to the city was something that was not, um, really practical to do. Uh, so it's a little far flung. There's a lot that's being filled in between those of you who are familiar with San Francisco know is sort of go down the San Francisco peninsula south of San Francisco. It's suburbia, suburbia, suburbia. So that kind of, you know, grows southward from the city gradually. What makes the Valley different is one, Stanford University's campus. Um, Stanford itself is growing. Uh, it's growing in size physically. It's growing in its student body to some degree. It's becoming more elite. Um, 1960-61, um, that was the, at that time, that was about half of the people who, uh, students who applied, prospective students who applied to Stanford got in. That percentage has gone down ever since. Now it's like <laughs> 0. 0.001%, who knows? Um, but it was not a, a kind of elite university, uh, and but it was becoming one and working very, very hard to make itself into that um, and restructuring itself to make itself its scientific and engineering capacity to become greater and greater and more well-matched to the needs of the tech industry. And that's a big part of it. But there were still a lot of orchards. It was still mostly, if you're driving through the valley, if you're driving, you're, you might be driving down one of the new uh, highways. So 101 um, and then 280 is very gradually being built. These are the two highways that are kind of go up and down the backbone of the valley on either side. Uh, those are that infrastructure is being built. 
But you, if you're cruising down El Camino, which is kind of the main drag going north to south, up and down the valley in 1969, you're going to see as many uh, farms and orchards as you would strip malls. It still would seem kind of quasi-rural. And then occasionally you would pass this strange low-slung building that had this, would have a sign on it that was some strange made-up name that ended in Onyx or something tech or something that was, and it wouldn't have any other signage. You would have never heard of the, whatever it's selling. Um, it would be kind of inward facing, kind of a very you know, built on spec, nothing spectacular office park. And that would be where an electronics company would be or a microchip company would be. So today, of course, Silicon Valley is famous for its outrageous salaries. When you're looking back at the 60s, did it basically keep keep in line with the rest of, let's say, skills-based industry? Um, or was there already a salary gap between Silicon Valley and other types of industries? Well, that's a good question. I, you know, to my knowledge, I don't, I, there was no, I've now not found any evidence of anyone um, saying, oh, I'm going to, you know, go to this company in the Valley because I'm going to get paid so much more. Nope. Um, they, they were kind of on par. Now, the, the advent of stock-based compensation had, had already happened. Hewlett Packard was an early innovator on that. Or this is the age when Hewlett Packard was kind of, you know, the, the largest and most significant homegrown Silicon Valley based company in terms of headcount and visibility. Lockheed based in LA had a larger headcount, but HP was, was pretty sizable. And that really, HP did a lot to set the tone for what people got paid, how they got paid, how, what their benefits were, um, that a lot of, HP veterans went on to other companies or became venture capitalists. And in doing that, kind of left a lot of that DNA and that um, work culture and ethos on other companies. And this is before the age of the IPO, right? That doesn't happen until later. Um, well, there, I mean, there, yes, I, Hewlett Packard goes public in 1957. Um, Hewlett and Packard are multimillionaires. So that's, you know, the people who are at the very top of these companies are doing quite well. Um, Intel, uh, founded in 1968, goes public um, not too much later and is extremely successful. Um, that you know now, of course, the there was a market in the 1960s and then in the 1970s, as we all know, the stock market has a hard time. So there's not a lot of um, money being made, or and it's very hard to raise money. To venture capitalists have a really hard time raising raising money in the 1970s, the market just locks down, you know, probably starting 72, 73. Um, and then it becomes very hard for new companies to to get traction and to to get the capital. They need much less go public. But there's those IPAs, IPOs do start um, in the 1960s. And there is this sense of, oh, you can you can make money doing this. Now, the culture of wealth and the the wealth, the actual wealth that really emerges in in the later part of the 20th century isn't there yet. Um, it's really with the personal computing revolution and really with the internet and really with the 21st century scale up of big tech that that's when this becomes a true landscape of wealth. That's when the housing in a place like Palo Alto or Menlo Park goes from being like slightly above market to being absolutely dizzyingly impossible to for anyone to afford. That's when it all goes nuts. 
So we'll get to that in a mm-hmm. second or later. So let's return now to those countercultural guys who are graduating in the late mm-hmm. 1960s and early 1970s and, and really begin the, the personal uh, computing revolution. So there's a many, many places to start. So I'll, I'll let you choose. But the ones that I, obviously the famous one to me is Wozniak and Jobs, mm-hmm. uh, of course, the, the advent of that. But, but, but is that the story you want to tell? Or is there a better place that we should look to understand the rise of this new class of people in Silicon Valley? And in particular, I'm interested in the ideological disposition that you were gesturing toward earlier, the sort of yeah. utopian fantasy of connection yeah. as a means to solve the problems that the 60s counterculture identified. Yeah. Well, I think where I would like, I think Jobs and Wozniak are a good place, but I think that where I want to really start is with Stuart Brand in 1968. And Stuart Brand is not a, does not found a computer company. Some of your listeners would be like, who, who? He was um, one of these multi-hyphenate, <laughs> I think today we'd call him a creator. I don't know what he'd be. He's everywhere. Um, and he's all over the kind of countercultural computer scene as it's emerging in the Valley. Um, and what he does, among other things, is in 1968 publishes this. It's not really a book. It's not really a magazine. It's kind of an art project. It's a statement. Who knows what it is? It's called the Whole Earth Catalog. And listeners might have heard of that. It's not a catalog. You couldn't actually order stuff from it. But it was this, um, uh, in a way, a political statement. And it was designed to uh, kind of provide everything that if you're going back to the land and uh, going, uh, you know, building a geodesic dome and and, uh, dropping out of society, here are the things you need. And um, but it's talking about, you know, it's really framing this self-sufficiency as something that is, uh, you know, that society has become controlled by large government, by church, by, by social institutions, by business. And now it is time for individuals to take power back for themselves. And this is what you do. You, you go and you become self-sufficient. And part of that self-sufficiency is, um, having taking computers and computing technology and seizing those tools for yourself and using them for these for these ends that ethos is something that informs what becomes the personal computer industry but really starts off as like a personal computer movement not made up of people that wanted to start a company and make money but saw computing as something that could improve education something that could improve uh, communication uh, could empower people who do not have power. Now, keep in mind, uh, nearly all of these early evangelists, uh, all, nearly almost all of them are white. Most of them are male. All of them are middle class, college going, college educated or partially educated people by and large. That background and that privilege perhaps blinds them to or makes them overly idealistic about what a computer could do and not realizing their own biases coming into it. That, uh, you know, racism, sexism, misogyny, <laughs> imperialism, all those things can be magically erased um, if we have a computer. Um, so it's it, it, that techno optimism really flows through this movement. But it did start with um, very kind of homebrewed computing, build your own, put something together. And, and what's, why this happens then is not just because of the politics. There's this beautiful connection, uh, of serendipity of 
the, this politics is brewing right at the time when the technology itself reaches this inflection point, when you actually could build a desktop computer. And this is why. So microchips start transistorized technology invented in the late 40s um, in the, the the first microchip or integrated circuit is the early 1960s. They're extremely expensive, among other things. Um, they are something that are designed for, again, to send rockets to the moon. They're not designed for a thing that sits on your desk. Over the course of the 60s and into the 70s, that the this is the famous Moore's Law, which Gordon Moore, the co-founder of Intel, kind of proclaims is something of a speculative um, pr- provocation that's also a bit of a marketing spin for his, his company, um, which is that the the number of chips on the number of circuits on a chip will double every every year and and they would become basically more powerful more cheaper and and that is exactly what happens and so by the time you get to the early 70s intel itself is is marketing what they call a computer on a chip which is a microprocessor which has essentially once you have a computer on a chip and other companies market them too and make them even more cheaply you could put that on a motherboard design the board elegantly enough put a wooden box around it, which is literally what they do, <laughs> and put a, attach a keyboard to it and plug it into a television monitor. And there you have a computer. You have this thing. So there's this, tech, it's now this, this technological capacity. And all these kids who've spent their childhoods tinkering in their basements are now young adults who are tinkering. And it's the 70s. And no one's, you know, it's the counterculture. And it's also a cruddy economy. So no one really has a lot to do. They're underemployed. They're living in a place that then the valley was still pretty cheap. You could live pretty cheaply. <laughs> you could, you know, live live in a pretty spare fashion and not have a regular job. And you could kind of play around with computing. And that's the beginning of what happens. Is this movement really centered in the valley or is there other nodes around the country? Because as you said, Boston was really the Mm -hmm. center of the tech industry until the 1970s. So how come there and not in Boston or other, you know, uh, Silicon Prairie or other Mm -hmm. tech hubs Mm -hmm. around the country? Yeah. So this is happening everywhere. It's happening everywhere where there are computer labs and baby boomers. So you name it, right? And particularly places that have concentrations of that activity and research universities that focus on that. Um, Boston in particular, yes, there are clusters of people doing the same thing. There are computer clubs emerging everywhere. In the Valley, the famous computer club in the Valley is the Homebrew Computer Club, which forms in the middle part of the 1970s as kind of a swap meet for nerds where they take the things that they're building and share and share software and share ideas. Again, this is not a uh, cutthroat business yet. No one's, no one's trying to make any money yet. And, uh, and the same thing, you see the same thing emerges all over the country. What sets California apart? Well, I I think that part of this is just this long-term specialization in small electronics communication devices that by that point has created this corporate infrastructure that this new generation, even though they're turning away from the military industrial complex and all it represents, they are benefiting from proximity to it. Um, in some cases, it it kind of owes, it's the fact that they're there. Steve Wozniak, co-founder of Apple, his dad was a Lockheed engineer. 
So, uh, you know, there are a lot of kids of Lockheed engineers who are there and growing up in the Valley because of that. So Steve Jobs' dad, too, worked for the defense industry, was a laser technician, um, wasn't even college educated and, and had an opportunity working there. But they also were growing up in this, you know, this little, again, this entrepreneurial Galapagos, this community that's still pretty small, where it's all pretty accessible. Steve Jobs famously, as a middle schooler, cold calls Hewlett Packard, asks for Bill Hewlett, the co-founder, CEO, gets Hewlett on the line and says, we're looking, I'm looking for some spare parts because I want to, you know, build something in my basement. And I think, and Hewlett was so taken aback by the moxie of this kid. He offers him a summer internship um, and, and on and on. That's Steve Jobs for you. I mean, there's, you know, something about these, these people that are celebrated as extraordinary are, you know, it goes, it goes a little too far, but we have to recognize there was something different about people like Jobs that did set them apart. So this this ecosystem, this community being there, that is something that they really benefit from. And it helps in this pivot from being just a bunch of guys in someone's garage sharing ideas, you know, sort of hippies dropping out from, from capitalism. They turn into capitalists in pretty short order. And it's largely because they're right in the middle of this hub of microelectronics. Hello, Prestige Heads. Danny here. And I wanted to tell you about this great product that I've actually been using for the past several months, and that's Aura Digital Frames. Now, you may have heard on the podcast recently a baby in the background, and it is indeed true that I've recently had a kid. But my parents, unfortunately, and like many of us, live pretty far away. But one way I've been able to update them on my baby's life is with Aura Digital Frames. I've been constantly sending them photos of him in all states, crying, laughing, what have you. And I can tell they really love it because they constantly ask for more photos. It's really been an amazing way for us to stay in touch and for them to feel like they're able to watch my baby grow up in a real way. It's an awesome way to stay in contact with people you love who might not live super close. And other people agree, Aura Frames was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter, and Fast Company said the simple, stylish digital picture frame can replace social media in your life, which is good for all of you, I know. Moreover, from now through Black Friday and Cyber Monday, you can visit AuraFrames.com and get $40 off their best-selling Carver matte frame with the code PRESTIGE. This is their best deal of the year, so get yours now. That's A U R aframes.com with the promo code prestige and as always terms and conditions apply so let's talk about that shift into capitalist because this is a classic left-wing critique of silicon valley that emerges in the 70s onward which is that for all this bullshit about free freeing the world they're basically it's just a marketing uh, tool, you know, the selling of cool or what have you. So wh whomever mm -hmm. you think it would be best to focus on, but how does that transition happen from, you know, 60s counterculture to 70s capitalist me decade mm -hmm. type person? Yeah. Well, I think, I think Jobs and Wozniak and Apple are a really great place to focus. Um, and, and my kind of, I'm going to preface all this by saying, I think that the real story here is a yes and story, as it often is. It's both idealis, idealism and raw capitalism <laughs> um, and, and, and often happening simultaneously. Uh, so Apple was founded in 1976. It was one of a number of companies that are starting to emerge out of this homebrew scene. Um, 
where people are realizing I'm building something that's distinctive and that people will pay money for. And maybe I'm going to sell it. And first, I'm going to start selling it to my friends and then another 50 people that are really into this stuff. Again, this is a tiny, tiny niche community. And this is also at a point where the you could buy a an Apple One from Apple. Again, it was in a wooden box. <laughs> it looked like it was made in shop class you still had to program the darn thing. Like you had to know assembly languages. You had to build the OS and the apps. Like you're, this is not something that you just walk into a radio shack and buy off the shelf. That's a few years later. So, so Apple is one of a number of companies and is building a really cool machine that is beautifully designed on the inside. And part of its design genius is that it had a kind of cheap janky chip that was built around. But Wozniak figured out a way to program to, to design a computer around it that made that chip work as well as a more expensive chip or microprocessor. So that was a, you know, a, a value add. But there were other early machines by a uh, formulated by other garage-based companies that were as good, if not better. What set Apple apart was really, I mean, Wozniak was extraordinarily it wasn't as te- technically talented, kind of out, outsized talent, but it was really Steve Jobs, who, like Bill, Bill Gates, was kind of a relentlessly competitive, capitalistic, <laughs> focused on the big picture and going big very, very early. At, a, at an early age, when everyone else is sort of, you know, even when he's padding around barefoot and, you know, uh, not showering that often <laughs> and seeming like any other young hippie dropout, college dropout, he was, he was like, you know what, this, what, what our company needs is we need to get the very best marketing guy in Silicon Valley. It was this guy named Regis McKenna, who had done work for Intel, among others, really experienced, an older generation guy, not a baby boomer by any long shot. And uh, they had first had this very homegrown hippie logo that was sort of like this wood etching of Isaac Newton and an apple. It was very cute, but it was very hippie. And uh, the, he persuaded, he, he chased down Regis McKenna, who did not want to take on this company because he was like, why would I do this? This is not worth my time. They're not even going to pay the bills. And uh, McKenna developed, uh, not only got a new logo, but also a really comprehensive marketing and advertising campaign. And one that put Steve Jobs, who was not the CEO initially, as but made Steve the spokesman, the storyteller, because what what Apple had and what the Valley had was a story, and that story was one that really hit right the just the right way at the late seventies, at this moment when the nineteen sixty generation is morphing into the yuppies they become, <laughs> and wanting to wanting to partake in capitalism and consumerism that is different from that of their parents, that is reflecting their values. And so what Apple and Jobs and then the Valley computer industry more broadly is selling is we're countercultural kind of companies. We're different. We're thinking different. That wasn't a motto until the 1990s, but that was the subtext. And what Jobs also did so powerfully and with, again, not alone, with McKenna's help and the help of others, was to explain computers to people beyond the 50 people who were these hobbyists and already already completely and on board with this thing. To say a computer is like a bicycle for the mind. That was a tagline of early advertising or early-ish advertising in 19, campaign in 1980, right before they went public. That's an 
incredible metaphor, isn't it? Think about it. A bicycle for the mind. If we get on a bike, you can go faster, right? You can go from point A to point B much more quickly. But you're still powering it. It's still you. You still have to work, but you don't have to work as hard. You have this machine that makes you better to go faster. That's what a personal computer is. And, and that's explaining it that way and using these very relatable analogies at a time when the advertising for these things was so like, it was all like this much RAM and ROM and da, 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 and all these like text, technical specs that, you know, any person who wasn't already in the, in it wouldn't have related to what it was, but this was selling it to a much broader market. And that was incredibly powerful. This reminds me a lot of Jan Wenner at Rolling Stone, also a San Francisco-based company who basically makes a transformation over the 70s into selling the counterculture to the mm -hmm. emergent generation of baby boomers. There's a lot of consonants um, there. Uh, just one question. Uh, do video games play any role in the story? Because if I recall correctly, Jobs works at Atari. Atari is founded mm -hmm. in 1972. Mm -hmm. And it's in the 1970s where the American consumer, at least young ones, begin actually interacting with things on a screen in a real way. So before I have more questions about the personal computing revolution, mm -hmm. but I was just wondering if video games play a story. And of course, Space War, the first video game, I think 1962, mm -hmm. is developed on a DoD mm -hmm. machine. Mm -hmm. So yep. um, do you have anything to say about that? Yes. Yes, video games are kind of, I think of them as kind of the, the twinned industry with personal computing that are introducing this world, digital world to the consumer. Um, and video games, very importantly, are introducing this world to young people, young people who are very young people who are um, growing up playing these games. And of course, a video game is, it's programming, right? I mean, you're, you're manipulating, um, things across the screen. You're figuring out how to solve problems and build things. It is, it is one step, you know, only, if only a few steps to programming or, or thinking about this interaction with the machine in a very different, radically different way. And, and games have this, yeah, this wonderful kind of comparable, genealogy springing from the, D, of course, DOD computers and people goofing around <laughs> on these computers and, you know, first playing war games, but then just playing games games. Um, Space War famously is the subject of a Rolling Stone article written by, wait for it, Stuart Brand, the Whole Earth Catalog guy I was mentioning. He's like Zelig. He's just a Forrest Gump. He just pops up everywhere. And uh, it's it's a story of all of the engineers at Xerox Park, which was the Palo Alto Research Center of Xerox Corporation, which becomes a real hub of um, extraordinary gestation of all of these pieces of what becomes essentially what we know as the Macintosh, but the graphical user interface and interactive computing and those machines that come um, available commercially in the mid-80s. But 10 years before, they're sitting around on beanbags uh, or spending all night playing space war. Atari is, figure, is founded in 1972. It is a uh, let's call it a freewheeling company. Um, hot tubs and a lot of pot smoking um, on the assembly line are involved. Um, probably, fortunately for Atari, it is successful enough that it's bought by Time Warner in 1960, what becomes Time Warner, in 1976. Um, has a big buyout, big payday for its founder, Nolan Bushnell. And, uh, and that probably causes that, that Who goes on the, to found Chuck E. Cheese, <laughs> Chuck E. Cheese. Yep. Um, uh, but you know, Atari remains based in the Valley, but it's, oh, it has corporate ownership that I think requires it to clean up its act a little bit. Um, there are only so many hot tub parties you can have before <laughs> everything, all the wheels fall off. Um, 
But it was a very different sort of company. It was a place that a lot of people, yes, a lot of people worked. Steve Jobs briefly worked there. And actually Bushnell was a key figure in the founding of Apple. And that, again, this is, you know, why does Apple or why do these other California companies kind of vault ahead of others is is Steve Jobs is able to go to Nolan Bushnell and say, hey, we need some investment capital for, we need some early, you know, seed money for this new company I'm starting. Will you give it to us? And Bushnell's like, no, but I can connect you to Don Valentine, who is, was kind of one of the premier venture capitalists in the Valley. Um, so, you know, that kind of knowing someone who knows someone was really important. The video games are extremely important. And then the video games that are built for the early personal computers, desktop computers, but the Apple and then the um, IBM and IBM clones that come on the market are really, really important part of the kind of, you know, creation of a, of software itself as a standalone industry, which before personal computing really was not what it became. Thanks. It's just such a compelling story to me, the sort of imprecation of these two industries. So we've been talking a lot, of course, about Silicon Valley itself, but another company is founded in 1975, I believe in New Mexico, actually, before it relocates to Washington. And that is, of course, Microsoft. So maybe it would be interesting to talk a little bit about Microsoft as a major company founded around the same time somewhere else and a little bit about who is this guy, Bill Gates. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are actually exactly the same, about basically the same age, both born in 1955. Um, and Bill Gates grows up. He's, he's different than a lot of the founders of Silicon Valley in this era in that he grows up with uh, maybe not wealth, but with connections. His father grows up in Seattle. His father is a very um, prominent lawyer in town. His mother is a prominent Philanthropist is on the board of the National United Way. Um, they're uh, again, they're not million multimillionaires by any means, but they're they're well off in kind of this prosperous mid twentieth century professional class in uh, a city like Seattle. And he grows up and is turned on to computing in high school. He goes to a private high school in Seattle called Lakeside, where he and his uh, friend from school is a couple years older, Paul Allen, are the beneficiaries of a um, having a computer teletype machine, a time-sharing machine put into their high school computer lab or math lab <laughs> um, by some fundraising by some um, entrepreneurial parents and teachers. And it's connected to the, the machines at the University of Washington. They soon get so into programming that they're um, sneaking into the UW computer lab after hours and in fact are have to be reprimanded by the chair of the department um, for um, using excessive computer time <laughs> because they're really not supposed to be there. You know, they, they get into it early, um, similar to some of the guys in the Valley who are being exposed to computing at a very, very young age and, and getting in on it early. What, uh, but Gates and Allen are doing something different than what's happening in the Valley. They're building software for these, what are then called microcomputers. So down in the Valley and somewhere, all these other computer clubs, they're building the hardware and then the software you give away for free. You, everyone writes their own and they share code and it's this sharing economy. So the, the cathedral and the bazaar, the open source versus proprietary software, this binary that continues to consume the world of tech, that is, starts right there. <laughs> that is where it starts. And on one side of the divide is Gates and on the other is uh, is everybody else. And so this comes to a head in one of my favorite pieces of 
one of my favorite primary sources to to teach with and to to uh, talk about, which is a letter that 20-year-old Bill Gates writes to the Homebrew Computer Club, which is the computer club down in the valley of which Jobs and Wozniak are members, among any many others, um, scolding them for taking his MS-DOS, the, the, the product that Microsoft is building for these and selling, um, and just sharing it around, basically <laughs> taking one license and <laughs> using unlicensed software. And so he writes this letter, beautifully written. His his parents and his teachers had taught him how to write a letter very well. Um, that is essentially accuses them of you know of theft. Saying what what you were doing is theft. Uh, we are trying to we have a business here. We're trying to make money, and you are not adhering to the rules. And so this is the beginning of the bad blood. <laughs> um, and, you know, in subsequent years, Gates uh, it does a lot of business with Silicon Valley. In fact, Microsoft was a very very important partner to companies, including Apple for many years. And then uh, it all, all the wheels came off, the the competition uh, superseded them. But, but it's, you know, very similar generationally. And, and I think one thing that's really useful to think about, when we think about people like Gates and Jobs, they are of a um, kind of late baby boom generation, but they weren't in college during the Vietnam era. They weren't out there with placards and bullhorns kind of protesting the war. They're a little younger, uh, they were in high school and middle school during the war or during those days of protest. They were adjacent to it. They were growing up in Seattle, which is also a, a, a big hub of anti-war protest, as well as the Bay Area, um, hubs of the countercultural counterculture. A lot of that is rubbing off, but they're not members of those communities. They're really focused on other things. And I think that generational distinction is really interesting and important. Just one quick question about Gates. So there's clearly a different ideological thing happening there, an emphasis on private property, an emphasis on individualism. To me, it reads as very Pacific Northwest. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think I think you're right. <laughs> it is very Pacific Northwest. It's um, very Pacific. It's my property. It's my own. It's like yeah. my land. I It's very pioneer-y, you know, which is yeah. like this culture that infuses yeah. everything up here. So I was just wondering if that's very yeah. different from the freewheeling counterculture of Berkeley, San Francisco. It, I mean, it is. I mean, part of it is, you know, just Gates being Gates. I mean, he was distinctive even within his own family. He was distinctive. He's sort of a singular personality. But yeah, it is. There is something about that, like this, this kind of inward turn or this, um, you know, yeah. Uh, the, and there's less, you know, from the get go, Gates and Microsoft make zero effort to kind of spin their their enterprise is something that's countercultural or anti-capitalist or make the world a better place. All of that gauzy stuff has no, he has no time for. I mean, this is a guy who was so focused on work and so incredible, such a workaholic that his idea of vacation, the only vacation he would take in the early years of Microsoft, even after they're getting like, you know, some, some traction and scale, the only thing he does is he takes a week off to go to this super competitive tennis camp. Like that's his idea of relaxation. Like he's incredibly, incredibly competitive. And that is part of the secret of his success. I mean, Jobs is also competitive too, but in a different 
way. And, and, and I, you know, it's interesting when I embarked on this, writing this book, I was told myself, I'm not going to write about Gates and Jobs. Everyone writes about them. Uh, like this is, this is a bigger story. We, and, and in the course, this is one of those, you know, great moments where your sources just talk to you or you just realize, no, actually I need to get out, my, out of my own way and, and stop because there is, you know, the reason that we talk about them and the reason they loom so large is they're, there are these just, they are so unusual and they're very interesting. And the fact that, that men like this had this opportunity then, you know, a generation earlier, like they, they would not have been the heads of companies. Um, but they are, you know, at that moment in American history, at that moment in this broader tapestry of economic and political history of the late seventies and eighties, this is their moment. And I think this is a good place to end on this question, the sort of rise of founder culture with both mm -hmm. Jobs and Gates. Can we talk a little bit about that and, and why you think it's such a crucial thing to emphasize? Yeah. So, you know, founder culture is very much, you know, that has its roots in the in the earliest days of Silicon Valley, where you have companies like Hewlett and Packard, named after their two co-founders, um, Hewlett and Packard, um, have Intel founded by Noyce Moore. Um, and Andy Grove is a as an early leader, um, an important leader of, of Intel and others, where the these individuals and particularly these technical people become co-founders, figureheads, um, and are, and are very sort of self-consciously, um, trying to create company cultures that are in opposition to the organization man culture and the corporate culture of the 1950s. Um, Hewlett and Packard really want to have a company that is more like an engineering lab than General Motors. And, um, including they don't want unions. That's another dimension that we can return to that <laughs> this sort of fierce anti-labor politics of the Valley go way, way back because unions are seen as this is a sign that management's doing something wrong. Right. Um, and so that founder centric and, and also the way that the media kind of responds to these companies. And this is not just in the Valley alone. You see this with other computer companies that emerge from the 1940s forward. This real curiosity and emphasis on the technical men who are at the center of it. Now, they may stay as the sort of spokesmen or the, the figureheads or the people who are um, running the company. Um, in, in the case of Intel and HP, the founders continue to run the company for a very long time. In the case of many other companies, including Apple, there are other people brought in very early to run the company, to actually be the people who take it from a garage to something bigger. Um, in Apple's case, it was a guy named Mark, Mike Markula, who was an early investor and a, uh, and an executive at Intel who was slightly older than Steve and Steve, but also knew how to run a company in a very traditional way. Um, but this founder-centric culture where the founders become the CEOs, become the decision makers um, that have, who have a great control over the direction of their company, um, an increasing amount of control, a, a, a kind of over outsized control that happens really more in the 21st century than 20th, but even in the 70s and 80s, there, it's starting to, that's, that's starting to happen. And part of this has to happen. This is the result of the venture backed model and the way that it, that it works and allows people to, in many cases, stick around, even when there's adult supervision put above them. Um, and also the nature of the, I think responding to this anti big business politics of the moment, right? Um, as American industry is struggling, 
uh, as car makers are going to Congress asking for bailouts in 79, is 80, uh, going bankrupt um, when these titans of industry seem to have failed. Now you have out of the ashes of the 1970s, uh, this phoenix of high tech companies run by these unusual young men who pose barefoot for Newsweek magazine and who don't seem like a typical CEO. And that is very appealing. That is part of the brand. It just seems you could you could see why an American in the malaise era of the late 1970s would be attracted to this world. It's it, it, it revives the futuristic hopes of the 50s and 60s. You have these dynamic slash weird characters who are very different from the heads of GM and, you know, all these other companies. It, it just makes a lot of sense. And we'll talk about all that soon. Margaret O'Mara, thank you again for joining us. Everyone, buy the code. It is a fantastic book. Margaret, thank you again. Thanks so much. 